Luke 2, verse 21. And I'll lead us in this reading. It says this. It says that when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, he doesn't have a name yet, he's just this Christ child, his name was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. What a great name, Jesus, Yeshua, or we might know Joshua, it means salvation, to save. What a perfect name. Now, when the days of her purification, that's Mary, according to the law of Moses, were completed. This is a total of 40 days. It was a ceremonial requirement after a woman gave birth to a boy, a male child. There would be a a purification process and ceremonial procedure that she would go through to become clean again. She was unable to touch anything hallowed or holy for those 40 days. If it was a girl child, it would be even longer. I don't know what that means, but it's it's an exodus. It's just there, all right? And so that's what they're doing. Mary, it tells us, according to the law of Moses. And it says in verse 22 that they brought him, Jesus, this baby, to Jerusalem, this is huge, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb, or the firstborn child, shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So again, they are in Coherence here with the law of Moses, with the law of God. This is the way in which the people of God would go about um, their care for their newborn child. They would take that child to the temple. The circumcision would happen on the eighth day. They would name the child on the eighth day, even though they already knew the name. That's nice, right? I don't know parents in here who have had to give it birth. You have to know by that day. I've had friends who like had two weeks go by and they didn't know what the name is. I actually had a friend who did that. Um, we came up, I think, with our names like, as they were, I think as they were coming out, Bernie probably like yelled at her. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but eight days, they got a little cushion there. And so they would name the child on the eighth day. They would bring the child, as it says there, the firstborn child would be presented to the Lord. This is Jewish law. And this was to be connected to, Exodus tells us, this is connected to, uh, of course, that night of Passover, the first Passover, when God spared all those firstborn children in Egypt through the blood that was sprinkled on the doorpost. So God commanded all, all those firstborn children, they belong to me. It's, it's a sign of saying, God, our children are yours. We're going to give you our firstborns. Eventually, the tribe of Levi would take over this dedicated role of being priests to the Lord. All right, But here we have her bringing Jesus as the firstborn to the Lord and bringing her sacrifice. Did you guys read that sacrifice that she brought? It was two two young pigeons or a pair of turtle doves. Now, typically it was a lamb or a goat. This is just good old-fashioned Levitical Bible right now. Keep going with me, okay? Now, typically it's a lamb or a goat. In this case, if you were a more impoverished couple, an impoverished family, you could go with a pair of turtle doves or or, um, some pigeons here. Or if you were even... Um, below, lower in the poverty line, you could bring some flour, all right? And so we see the family that Jesus is born into here, they're not living in East Boca, all right? So here's what it says. It says, they came to offer, again, that sacrifice. Now, verse 25 says, they're in the temple, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man, Simeon, behold, it means, check this out, he was just and devout, just and devout devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was 
upon him. This is just a remarkable man. This is an Old Testament saint, an Old Testament believer, and the Holy Spirit is on this guy. It says in verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a great revelation to have in your old age. You're not going to die without seeing the Messiah. Verse 27 says, So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Look, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Every parent has big dreams for their kid. I don't think any parents ever had something as epic as this. They're like, we got a pretty good one here, okay? The firstborn here. They marveled at the things that were spoken. Behold, Simeon blessed them and said to them, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against, and then he speaks to Mary, yes, a sword will pierce through your soul also, as she will one day watch her son be pierced upon a cross. There will also be her soul being pierced, viewing this sight, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36, now there was another one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, Phanuel, whatever you prefer, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and, have, and had lived with a husband for seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow for about 84 years. And she did not depart from the temple. But she served God with fastings and prayers day and night, night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Israel. This is God's word. Lord, we come to you thankful that we have this true historical account inspired by your spirit through Dr. Luke here in Luke's gospel. God, for us to know, us to know, Jesus, who you are and how significant it was that you came to earth, God. So we pray, Lord, in this time, I pray, I ask God that as this environment is now in a posture of sitting and listening, Lord, I pray that this would be so much more than a lecture. So much more than just like a Christian TED Talk. God, we want this to be a time where we have ears that get to hear from the living God and nothing else. God, we know for that to happen, we are in need of your spirit. Lord, I am in need of the gift of your spirit so that the words that are spoken now would be pleasing, God, in your sight. I pray you'd edify your church, build up your, your, your community here at Solace today, and I pray you would speak through me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, an incredible account that we just read there of what happens after Jesus goes from that nativity scene where the shepherds visited now to the temple. A lot of stuff happened. Let's summarize all this real quick into the title of my message this morning. Uh, I've entitled the message this morning appropriately, I've entitled it, Tis the Season. Tis the Season. Now, last week we talked about a little bit, as we broke into this holiday season, we talked a little bit about many of our unashamed love 
for the holiday season. There's really no season like the Christmas season. There's no movies like Christmas movies. There's no music like Christmas music. We like to decorate our house, you know, for, for Christmas. We're not like some, some of you, which is cool if you do. This is not like a beef thing. But, like, some people, they decorate for every holiday. Like, I had a neighbor in our old, in our old neighborhood that we lived in, and he would decorate for every single holiday. Like, even holidays you didn't know, like National Ice Cream Day. Like, no, that's a joke. But, like, he was so devout in decorating. He would decorate everything. Um, I remember every year on Mother's Day, it was kind of creepy. He had this white sheet and he spray painted in red spray paint, mom's rule. And he would hang it on his front window of his house. Totally normal, seemingly sane man. And, but every, every year I'd forget that the bloody looking, you know, mom's rule sign is going to be there. There's nothing says happy Mother's Day. Like dripping red spray paint that says mom's rule. Yeah, so he was one of those like, now for me, man, it's only Christmas that I think really deserves the decorations. It kind of has that special to it. So last week we talked about that, man. There's nothing like the Christmas holiday. And, you know, it's, it's kind of rare not to like Christmas. I'm not saying you're not in here. But it's so rare that entire Christmas movies are made about people like maybe you. I'm not, no offense, but... Like, there's The Grinch. There's Scrooge. Like, entire narratives of these films that are made around people who are so strange that they don't like Christmas. There's something about it. Now, of course, there's so many reasons why we all love Christmas. But I want to submit to us today perhaps a reason that we might not have thought about recently. And it's a reason why not only we like the Christmas holiday, but I think it's the reason why many of us, we like holidays in general. Not just for what they are and what they can offer us, like a Thanksgiving or a Valentine's Day to rekindle a little love. Not just what they are in and of themselves. But I think within the human heart, within the American spirit, there is this love for the holiday season. Because, well, what holidays do for us is they break up the mundane same flow of our year. You with me? There's something about Christmas that just goes, oh, it's Christmas. Like, I still have my job, and I still kind of have the same routine. But there's something about seasons and tradition that breaks up life to give it some excitement. You know, God knew this when he created the seasons. Genesis tells us this, that he put signs in the heavens. He put stars in the heavens. He oriented the universe so that life would be filled with these cycles of seasons, which is hard for us living in South Florida, isn't it? It's horrible. Winter 2018, never forget, last week, last week, two days. (laughs) South Florida's tough. We don't have four seasons. We have three seasons, right? We have the summer season, we have the hurricane season, and we have the football season. Those are our three seasons. Everywhere else, they get to enjoy. Anybody actually grow up in a town or in a state where you had the four seasons? Wow, what's it like? It's hard, man. So it can be kind of tough, you know, we have the, we have, I guess what we have is we have like rainy season and extra rainy season, you know, that's, that's Florida. Um, but there's something, again, there's something about seasons. It, it breaks up the mundane flow. You know, this is the word, this is the language that scripture uses, scripture, the Bible uses to describe the different stages and phases that we go through in our life. Not just according to nature and holidays, but your life, from a spiritual perspective, did you know this, is made up of 
seasons. Seasons. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the famous passage where Solomon gives us his wisdom. And he says this, that to everything, there's a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. And he goes on to list, man, there's a time to plant, there's a time to pluck out. There's a time to laugh and there's a time to grieve. There's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. He, he talks about this concept that there's different times and seasons that have been ordained by God to give us our very own life cycle of seasons. Life is filled with seasons. Uh, what I love about this verse is I think it gives us two robust truths about seasons. Number one, it's this. Uh, seasons, and we understand this just through the laws of nature, but we also understand this scripturally, that seasons are not permanent. This is huge to understand this. Seasons are not permanent. The nature of a season is that it's temporary. It's passing by. It's filling a time slot for a specific purpose. They're not permanent. They're temporary, which is hard and needs to be Heard, and we need to be reminded of this because sometimes the season is so long that it may feel like this is never going to end. And the language of Scripture helps us to understand this. Listen, as long as your season may feel, it's a blip in the spectrum of eternity. What you're, so if you're going through a tough season right now, Romans 8 says this, the sufferings of this world are nothing to be compared to the glory that's coming. Don't get discouraged in your season. It's not permanent. As long as it feels, that's the first thing we need to understand about seasons. They're not permanent. I love the way that Paul says it, right? In Galatians 6, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due, what? In due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. Your season, it isn't permanent. But let us also not become indifferent. Don't be discouraged, but don't become apathetic and indifferent because not only is your season not permanent, but it's also not, you could say, purposeless. Those temporary seasons that we find ourselves in, they, they have a purpose. Every single one, to everything there's a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. So it's the job, it's the call of every follower of Jesus to not try to rush out of my season, not try to get evacuated out of my season. But what our seasons should lead us to do, our stages of life should lead us to do, is to press into who God is and to ask God to give us eyes to see our season. Lord, what season do you have me in? And God, help me not miss what you're trying to do in this temporary season. Because eventually the season you're in is going to be a season you're going to look back on. Look at your life. Look at your 20s. Look at your 30s. Look at your teenage years. Look at the lessons God was teaching you. And so our goal should be this. God, give me eyes to understand where you have me right here, right now. What's your purpose for this season? Help me not live in the next season. Help me not be stuck in the past season. Help me get every drop of purpose that you have for this season so that you might accomplish all that you're desiring to do in my life. Seasons, to everything there is a season, not permanent, but not purposeless. So ask you, ask you this question for you to ask yourself this morning, and it's this, what's your season? What kind of a season does God have you in this morning? Where are you at? 
What's life like? And the reason why I ask this question and the reason why I think we can get some answers that might fill in some of the gaps of this question is because here in the text that we just read in Luke chapter 2, I'm not sure if you saw it, but we had three characters that each represent, if you look closely, three different seasons. So if you notice up here on stage, I got my handy-dandy whiteboard. And so for the sake of my memory not getting us rabbit trailed, I'm going to try to write out my points today. You cool with that? Awesome, thanks, all right? So the first group that we see in our narrative today, the first season that we see represented, and you might want to look at this and go, you know, maybe I'm in one, maybe I'm in two, maybe I'm transitioning, whatever. But the first couple we saw in there was Mary and Joseph. For the sake of time, we will call them Mary Joe. Mary Joe. Uh, Mary and Joseph, you could say, are in a season of, pardon my calligraphy, a season of, Blessing. Something's been given. A child's been given that's unlike any other child that's been given. You could say Mary and Joseph, pretty blessed. In fact, that's what was told to Mary by the angel. Blessed are you among women. Mary's in a season of blessing, a season where something's been given. You can read that, right, in the back? Sure you can, okay? It says given. Okay. The second group, or the second character that we saw was a man named, what was his name? Simeon. Simeon is in a season of, we see it represented there, he's been in a season of waiting. It was revealed to this man by the Spirit that he would not die without seeing the Messiah. So the Bible tells us about him that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is a man who's in a season of promise. Something's been given for Mary and Joseph, but something's been promised to Simeon. And then lastly, what's her name? Anna. I actually forgot. That's why I was asking. I'm not kidding. Okay. Anna. Anna is a woman who's in a season of, we could call it this, represents maybe a season of grieving. So if Mary Jo represents a season where something's been given, Simeon represents a season where something's been promised, season of waiting, You could say Anna represents 84 years of being a widow, maybe represents a season where something's been lost. Something given, something promised, something lost. A season of blessing, season of waiting. Maybe today you're in a dark season of grieving. Now I want to say this about the variety of seasons that we have up here on the board and that we have up here right here in our text. I think it's so beautiful that we have a variety of these seasons right here in our church. One thing that we never want to do at Solace Church is segregate seasons. Let's get the young people over here to do young people things. Let's get the not young people over here to do not young people things. Let's get kind of the in-between people. Oh, the married stage, the couples stage, the dating stage. Andrew, why don't you have the 10 billion ministries here for every stage of life? And I'm all about that. Like, I'm all about seeing God by his spirit do some awesome things in our church, you know, create married couples ministries and see that happen. But the way that we want to start things here as a church is we don't want to segregate the stages of life in this room for the sake of every person in this room. The worst thing that we could do is say, hey, everybody who's gone through life and you've grieved a lot, just go over here and live in your grief. Weep with those who weep. And everyone who's kind of in a season of rejoicing, you got engaged, you're getting married, you had a child, go over here. Everybody else who's waiting, just you, you guys stick together too, okay? We never want to do that. 
In fact, the language of Scripture, when you read the book of Titus, the Titus book in all the Bible, when you read the book of Titus, chapter 2, you know what you see? You see this command that was, Kyle's shaking his head at me. Come on, bro. You know I like puns. You see this command that's given to the church. And, and, and Paul is writing to Titus. He's saying, hey, in the church, in the local body, make sure that you take the person that's in the stage of grieving, the older women, and make sure they're spending time with the young wives. Make sure the young men that are fired up with zeal, that they're linking up with an older man that can infuse some passion. They're a kite, man. They're on fire, but they need a kite string to keep them grounded and centered. You see, some of you are in a stage of grieving, and what you need to be around is somebody who's in a stage of, stage of rejoicing. Not to be jealous, but to be reminded of all that God has done in your life. And you get around someone who's in this season of blessing. Something's been given. You're going, you know what? A lot has been taken away, but the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. He's done some awesome things in my life. And then some of us, we're in this season of blessing. And we're like, I don't know why people talk about Christianity being so hard. Well, you're 21. (laughs) I was talking to Glenn about this one time. The longer we live, it's not just that we get life experience. We get death experience. And some of us young people, we need to be around people that have walked through more than what's been given. They've walked through and how not just to handle the blessings, but also to handle the losses. There's couples in this room that you were barren for years, and after praying and praying and praying and waiting, God answered your prayer. And that testimony of God being faithful to fulfill what he's promised, and the perseverance that you developed in the time of waiting, that is for someone else in this room that's waiting for something else that God's promised. And they need your faith. That's why we have to be, as a church, we have to be a community. And I'm just giving a little encouragement here because I'm excited for January when, as a church, we're going to be more than just a Sunday gathering. We're going to be gathering in homes every week, not just for a group experience, but for a life experience, to do life together and to fuse all the different ages and stages, zeal and wisdom, rejoicings and hurtings, all of that beauty and brokenness all wrapped up in a package called the local church. I'm not sure what you think church is. That's what church is. It's this journey of brokenness and beauty, of pain and glory. And we want us to be a church that is filled with Mary Joes, filled with Simeons, filled with Annas. So again, let's go back to this question. What season maybe do you most resonate with? And let's look at each of these real quick and maybe gain some wisdom from God's word about how to walk through these seasons. I just want to say, even if only one of these applies to you, I want to say this about these seasons. I would encourage you to pay attention to each detail for each season because even if you're not in this season, here's what I would probably guarantee you're going to be. And let's prepare for the trial we're not yet in, amen? Not when it shows up. You don't put your hurricane shutters up the day that that thing shows up at your front door. We want to prepare. We want to be boarded up. Or maybe it's that you've already gone through this and you go, I don't need that wisdom anymore. But maybe you need God's word in your life to encourage you in these areas because you're going to come across someone who's in this season. And what God's doing in your life is not just for you, but it's for people around you. He comforts us so that we can be a comfort to others. So let's look at each of these. The first one that we saw here is we saw this season of blessing. Maybe that's you today. You're Mary Jo. You're Mary Jo. You're in a season of of abundance. God has given you something you've prayed for. Again, you just got engaged. You just had a child. You just got a job. Or maybe you've been in this, let's not just talk about just happened. This might not have just happened, you know, last week. Maybe it's been a couple years. You love your job. Life is going really 
Good. How do you, how do I best steward, steward that season? And let me mention this, that that is the key word. That's what we have to ask. How am I stewarding what I've been given? Jesus tells this great parable. It's called the parable of the talents. We all know this, right? It's like one of the most famous parables ever. In fact, it's so famous that nowadays when we talk about somebody having a lot of an aptitude for something, we're like, they got talent. But you know what a talent is? It's a, it's a measurement of money. It's, it's, a, it's a certain measurement of currency. And Jesus tells a parable about that currency. And he tells us, there's a master, he tells us, that represents God. And he has entrusted to servants different quantifiable amounts. There's one that has one. There's one that has, what is it, three? You know, more than one. And there's another one that has more than that guy. We'll just say that. He has about ten. And each of these stewards are entrusted with a certain level of blessing. And the master goes away to a far country. He comes back, and he comes to find that well, each of these stewards, they handled what they were given differently. Some of them, two of them, they were wise, and they took what they were given, and they made the most out of it. They multiplied it. They invested it. They were good stewards. The other, who was given not as much, he buried his in the ground. As long as no one can take it, got to protect it. Got to make sure no one touches this. And it's the steward that was safe, was cautious with what he was given, that hoarded and protected the one that he was given. He was the one that the master said, foolish. You haven't been faithful with what you've been given. Here's this principle that we see in scripture when it comes to blessing. It's not about how much you have compared to how much they have. It's not what this is about. It's not about how great your job is compared to how great that person's job is. It's not about your relationship status compared to their relationship status. It's not about how awesome your husband is compared to how awesome you think their husband is. It's not about what gifts God's given you in the church compared to what gifts God's given them. When you stand before God, what you will answer for is what you did with what you were given. What did you do with what you were given? And here's the question I want to ask today. What has God blessed you with? What has God blessed you with? Job, family, gifts, talents, maybe a calling that's still in that waiting process. But what has God placed in your hands? We see Mary and Joseph as a great example of what to do with what God's given. I mean, this is the Messiah. Imagine that. What did God give you? He just entrusted the Savior of the world into my hands in baby form. No big deal. Big deal. And so they recognize this gift is something from God, and that's where it has to start. I, I think that's the most important part, I think, of navigating this is remembering what James 1 says, that every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light. So it's got to start here. It's got to start by you recognizing that everything you have in your life is there because God put it there. Not because you earned it. Not because you were savvy enough. But everything we call this common grace, every good and perfect gift, is something that God has given out of his goodness. And what that should lead us to do is not squeeze our hands, not bury it in the ground, not control it and use it for my own name and my own glory, but it should lead us to do what Mary and Joseph did. As, as they were gifted this incredible opportunity to parent the Messiah, the Bible tells us that they went down to the temple in obedience to God's law, in obedience to the Levitical law, and it tells us this, that they presented Jesus to the Lord. They presented him to the Lord. That's verse 22. They said, God, 
He's yours. You've given him to us, but it's something you've entrusted to us. So we want to come back to you with what you've given and hold it with open arms, open hands. Dads, are you holding your family that way? God has blessed you with a wife. He's blessed you with kids. And do you kind of hold that? Are you kind of doing that your way on your terms when you're in the right mood? Or have you recognized the gift of your family enough to turn it back in praise, enough to surrender that and say, God, I'm going to do this your way. I'm going to lead my family your way because they're yours. I'm going to present them to you, just like that firstborn child was presented back to the Lord. What is it for you? Maybe it's a calling that you've been holding on to and you've been neglecting. What God says is, I've given you that. Turn it back over to me. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's the new job you just received. Whatever it may be, look at this simple wisdom for blessing. It's holding it up before God with open hands. And this is the language that Romans uses as well with our whole lives, right? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. So this is what we're called to do with our whole lives. And I love that he says, it's your spiritual worship. In the New King James, it says, it's your reasonable service. It's what somebody who has received the gift of Jesus, giving up his whole life for them to be saved. It's only reasonable that as they stand in his righteousness, they say, God, you have purchased my life and everything else I have, it belongs to you. If you've purchased my life from death, how much more do you own everything else in my hands? So we present it to God. This is the posture, right? So we reflect that certainly when we sing, when we worship. We want to hold our hands open to heaven because it's a, it's a posture that says, God, I'm giving myself to you. You've bought my life. You've given your life for me. I'm giving you my family. I'm giving you my finances. I'm giving you everything because you've owned it all. You've entrusted it to me. Season of blessing. Season of blessing. The next person that we see is Simeon. And Simeon is a man who we see is in a season of waiting. Season of waiting. It tells us about Simeon that he was given a promise. And that promise was that he would not die. It was revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not die without seeing the Messiah. Now, I think this is really interesting. I just want to point this out. It tells us in verse 25 first, just theologically to understand something here, that Simeon was a just and devout man. It's interesting. Just, it means dependable. He was right. You could, you could rely on this guy. You, you, could, you could say, hey, hold my wallet for a second. You could say that. You could say, hey, Bar- can, you hold, can you watch my car? Can you watch my house? Can you watch? Like, he's a guy that was dependable. He was just. He wasn't shady would be the uh, modern version of the opposite, right? He wasn't crooked. He was just. He was dependable. It says he was also devout. So this guy was also devoted. There was relational dependability in this guy. This is a good guy, we would say. And there was also spiritual devotion. He was devout, meaning he was at church every Sunday. He was reading his Bible every morning. He sang to God. He engaged with God. He was a religious person. He was devout in his religion. But I want us to notice that even with all that, he was still waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is huge. No matter how dependable we are to to man, no matter how devoted we are in religion, we need the Messiah. 
We need Jesus. When we stand before God one day, we need more than our own merit. We need more than how dependable I was, God. God, look how devoted I was, God. We need to be able to stand there in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is the gift of salvation. Maybe you're here today and you go, man, I've, I have my confidence in the fact, this is you. You came in today and your thought was, man, I'm going to go to heaven one day when I die. And the reason is because I'm going to be with God forever. And it's because I'm a lot more devoted than some people I know. I'm at church today. Come on. They're not, but I am. I'm dependable. I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. Listen, the reality is simple. It's, it's, it's laid out for us. It's this idea that no matter what good you do, you can't erase your own record of sin. It doesn't happen. There's no form of justice that would do the same thing. You, you can't outweigh it. You can't out-earn it. In fact, we can't even fathom how flawed our brokenness is because we've sinned against a holy God. To sin against one another, maybe, you know, and you have had people who sinned against you and they've made it up, you know. You know, they send you flowers or they took you out to dinner. He said sorry, you know, all right. Now, we, we understand that in a human plane, but we cannot begin to comprehend the offense of sinning against a holy and righteous God who created us by his pleasure for his glory. We've turned our backs on him. Every last one of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no matter how much dependability you have, no matter how much devotion you have, what you need is what I need. It's what we need. We need Jesus to trade places with us. And that's what he did on the cross. He went to the cross and it was there that Jesus became all of our sins so that we today could be confident that we stand in his righteousness. That we're right with him through faith in what he's done. You can have that same hope by placing your faith, not in your performance, but in Jesus' performance, who is alive from the dead and is waiting to even hear you call to him. Simeon knew this. Despite being devoted, despite being dependable, he understood that, man, none of that can comfort me spiritually. I need God to save me. That's comfort. When you don't save yourselves, but God saves you, there's comfort in that. So he was waiting for the Messiah, and he knew it was in his heart. The Spirit revealed to him. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was not dying. He was not going to die. The guy's like over 100 years old. And he knew, no matter what, I'm old, but I haven't seen the Messiah yet, so I'm not going to die yet. Because God revealed that to me. God promised that to Simeon. We don't know exactly how this was revealed to him. God reveals things to us in a lot of different ways, but the conclusion was the same. Maybe it's the same in this room today. I bet in this room there's such a variety of ways that God speaks to us, and this is what bothers me sometimes about some Christians that think that God only speaks to people the way he speaks to them. Well, how did the Lord reveal it? Well, he didn't do that to me, and so I am the authoritative word of revelation. It's like, no, you're not. The word of God is. And in God's word, there's a lot of different ways that God reveals things to us. As long as they don't go against and contradict God's word, we believe the Holy Spirit hasn't just saved us, but he's still working in our lives. We don't believe in, in what's called deism, that God kind of set things in motion and then checked out, went on vacation, we're going to see him when we die. Every one of us, we should have within our own lives something that we feel the Holy Spirit is calling us to, right? Or promising for us, whatever that may be. Maybe it's to just be used by God in a mighty way. Maybe he's put that in your heart. You, you want to make a dent with your life. Maybe it's to raise a family that 
that multiplies in discipleship. You, you have kids that love Jesus that in turn have kids that love Jesus that impact their environments. Maybe it's to just be a blessing in your workplace. Maybe it's the promise that one day you're going to have a wife or a husband. There's something in your heart that is looking out for that. Whatever your promise may be, no matter how it's come to you, the ultimate question is this. In the season of waiting, how are you waiting? How are you? You know, waiting's inevitable, right? Like, my kids will tell you this. They hate it. Everywhere they go, okay? Lugging around. Dad, come on, Dad. Dad, dad, and it eventually just becomes a white noise. Did I hear something? Um, waiting. Listen, waiting in life with God is inevitable. We all right now are waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. It's just part of our lives. Waiting, waiting. The question in your life is not if you're going to wait for something that God has promised. It's how are you going to wait? Are you waiting well? Are you waiting well? The scripture calls us to wait. You know, David says this a lot in Psalm 27. David was a man who was given a promise from God at a young age. And God said, David, one day you're going to be the king of Israel. David found himself on the run for his very life on Israel's most wanted list from the present king of Israel. And the promise was reduced to more of like a memory. I think God promised me that. You ever had that? You start doubting the promise because you've been waiting for so long? And David encouraged us in Psalm 27, wait on the Lord. Wait on God. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. It's not just that you wait, it's how you wait. Are you waiting for the Lord, or are you waiting on the Lord? On the Lord. Just waiting for God. He's promised me something. What do you do? I'm sitting in the waiting room, waiting for God to call my name. Waiting, here I am, right? Patience is hard too, right? Especially when you're in, you're in line. You ever had that happen? You're in line, you're at the grocery store. It's taking a little bit long, but you're good. You're like, I'll just pray. Then some behind you goes, this is taking forever. And you're just like, oh, you're right. <laughs> you only got one person working the register, right? <laughs> Heard that like, I hear that once a week in Boca. Impatience, it's contagious because it's all of our default, right? So we lose heart. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, wait on, you know, biblical waiting, waiting on God doesn't mean that you sit back passively twiddling your thumbs, reading a highlights magazine in the waiting room. God waiting, waiting. Waiting on God in scripture looks a lot like pursuing God. Looks a lot like seeking God. It's active. I'm waiting on the Lord. Jesus said to the disciples, go and wait for the promise of the spirit in Jerusalem. You know what they did? They got together, they started praying. They started seeking God. They started waiting on the Lord. I think Simeon's a great example of how to wait on God. Uh, Simeon, it tells us this, that he was a man of the Spirit. The Spirit. How did God bring this promise to pass in Simeon's life? Was it through Simeon's works of the flesh? No, it was by the Spirit. A lot of times that's what we could do when we're waiting. We're like, God, thanks for the promise. Um, God, I've come up with a way to help you out. I know a way for you to provide for me. And what was promised now becomes something that you find yourself trying to take and steal on your own. And we got to be careful of that. We, we always got to be careful of that. What begins in the spirit so subtly becomes a work of the flesh. When we start to put our fingerprints all over it. Right? Remember Abraham? Abraham, you're going to have a child. And Abraham's like, adoption? Like, how's this going to work, God? 
your wife, Sarah. God, Lord. Oh, you're not laughing. Okay. Um, you know how old she is, God. She's barren. He goes, trust me. Hebrews tells us, or Romans tells us that you've got to believe that God is able to do what he promises. Now, what does Abraham do? After a little bit of waiting, he goes, oh, I know what God meant. He meant for me to conceive with our maidservant Hagar and just pretend that it's Sarah's child. He takes matters into his own hands, and what comes out of that is conflict, to say the least, in their family for generations to come. The promise was of the Spirit. The, listen, the reason why God has you waiting is because when he provides for you, he wants you to know that it was him and not you. Nothing you could do. God put in my heart like 10, 12 years ago, Andrew, I'm going to call you to lead and pastor a local church. And all along the way, there were, there were opportunities that presented themselves before me where I could have just maybe reached out and made something happen. The best way to go is to wait on God and let him do it. It's harder, it's harder, but it's better in the end. The Bible says in Proverbs that an inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be as blessed in the end. Less is more. Be patient. Your blessing is coming. The promise will be fulfilled. All the promises of God are yes and amen. So if you're unsure today of whether or not your promise is going to come to pass, get your eyes off the promise. Get your eyes on the promiser. He's faithful to do what he promises. You're in a season of waiting. Let's be like Simeon. Let's be those who wait by the Spirit. We seek after God. We don't try to take matters into our own hands and help God out. And then lastly, we have Anna. Anna, we could say, represents maybe this season of grieving. She's in a time where, as we look, something's been lost. Her husband, of seven years from her youth, has been gone now. She's been a widow now for 84 years. Loss comes in, in many different forms. Um, there's different degrees of the pain of loss. Just because your loss recently maybe wasn't a loved one, maybe it was your job, maybe it was a friendship, doesn't mean that God's heart doesn't hurt for you. I want to say that. Something about loss, it's so foreign to us. We were never created to lose what God gave. Do we know this? In heaven, there's no loss. Do we know this? In heaven, everything we have is without sin. It's without blemish. There's no more death the way the Bible says it. So there's a special sickness that we can develop when we lose something, when we lose someone. It says in Proverbs that hope deferred can make the heart sick. When you were expecting maybe them to be with you for the stage of life that you're in right now and they're not here anymore. When you had this expectation of how your life would go out, how the friendship would go out, how the job would work out, and when that hope is deferred, when it's dashed, when it's taken away, when you experience loss, the heart grows sick. And it's, I think it's often displayed in the symptom of, of bitterness is, is often, I think, the thing that happens. It's, and it's not always like bitterness, like I don't like them, like not that kind of bitterness, but it's just like this bitter taste about life. You ever tasted the bitterness of life before? Maybe not because you've walked through a lot of sweetness, and we need you too. But as you walk through life, the Bible teaches it's the valley of the shadow of death. And loss is going to happen. The Lord is going to give, and, and there's going to be times where things are taken away. And the natural tendency, because this is so foreign to us, is to just feel sour and bitter. 
Be bitter with life. Be bitter with God. To just have this sense of, of, of anxiety even. Like, can I trust God? Can I trust anyone? And, and here's what I think Anna can encourage us with. 84 years, this woman's a widow, lost her husband at a young age. And there's this simple phrase that's used about her. We see that she was at the temple praying. She was fasting. She's a prophetess. She's a spiritual woman. But can we zero in on one specific attribute about her? It says this, that in verse 37, that she did not depart from the temple. She didn't depart from the temple. You see, the bitterness of loss is inevitable. It's going to happen. You weren't made to lose a loved one. I wasn't made to lose my mom who went home to be with Jesus when I was 21 years old, three months before my wedding. You, you can't control the bitterness sometimes. It's just like rain. You can't control the weather. It just happens. And you're just drenched in it. And you're just there. What Anna shows us is that there is freedom in experiencing that bitterness in the presence of God. Before God. It's been said this way, I heard it recently, that the presence of God is not a place to bypass how you feel, it's a place to process how you feel. God, this is where I'm at. This is what's in my heart. This is how I feel. What the enemy would love for you to do in your bitterness is to depart. To say, I'm out of here. I'm going to try to go find comfort somewhere else. I'm going to go try to find comfort in that thing or that relationship. But there's a gift that God gives us in being able to have the permission to feel before him to process before him, and we find that when we stay close to him, that he becomes our comforter. And he gives us this peace. It surpasses all understanding. He ministers to our hearts. He ministers to our souls. Hebrews warns us. It says, beware, brethren, lest in any of you there be this evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. We've got to watch out for this. This tendency to give up. This tendency to walk away because of what God has taken away. Rather than pressing into the Lord like a woman, like the woman here, like Anna, who didn't depart from the temple, even though she lost the, the love of her youth, she stayed close to Jesus. And it was in proximity to Jesus that we see this woman becomes an incredible servant of God. God uses that misery, and I'm sure it became her ministry as she served God in the temple night and day. I, I just love this. She comes before Jesus and, and she gives thanks to the Lord. That is what coming to the Lord will, will lead you to do. It's not that there's an absence of the pain, but amidst the pain, God can still give you some gratitude. And I think sometimes this is hard for us because, you know, we live in a society where we, we want to be, sh sh you know, shielded and sheltered from all pain. What's the fastest way to my comfort and my pleasure? And so we either want pleasure, like if we're in pain, we're just like, I just want pleasure. But sometimes, most of the time in life, those two things cohabitate. Like, you hear a lot in the church about, like, ups and downs. I don't know about you. I, feel, I might be crazy. But I feel like my life is filled with ups and downs often at the same time. It's not always just like, oh, great day, bad day. It's just life, right? It's like the pain that we walk through that doesn't always go away. Uh, no matter how long they've been gone, it still hurts. They're still not here. But there's a pleasure. There's a comfort. There's a gratitude. There's a ministry that God provides in the midst of that. It's a joy. It's a strength with what you're walking through. And I found gratitude especially, just the discipline of it. It's a discipline to be thankful. It's not always the default. But, but I found that the discipline of gratitude, as I come close to God and I'm like, Lord, it hurts what's gone. But I'm so thankful for what you've given me. 
I'm so thankful, God, that I have you right now to come before. That discipline of gratitude, it is in my life, it's been one of the greatest remedies for the bitterness of loss. It's a sickness. Coming before God in the midst of our loss. So again, what season are you in? What have you experienced in the past few years, maybe months of your life? Has something been given? Has something been promised? Has something been taken? Has something been lost? Whatever the season may be, let's remember what we started with, that there is a season for every purpose under heaven. God is seeking to do something in our lives, each and every one of us, with what we're walking through. What we got to do is we got to come before God and say, Lord, what am I walking through and how do I get the most out of this time of blessing, this time of waiting, or this time of loss?